passed away. And they were looking for an opportunity to really face with this dilemma what to do. Because it's very expensive to, to, to fly somebody who's passed away, a dead body, back overseas and back home to where they lived in New York. It would cost a, a fortune. And yet there in, in the Holy Land, they were offering them deals to bury the woman there. And when they came to the decision of what to do, the, the man said, we thank you, we thank you for the deal, but we got to take her home. They said, but why would you spend all that money? And he said, because 2,000 years ago, they buried somebody here in these tombs, and I just can't take the risk with my mother-in-law. <laughs> so we've been talking about the resurrection. And the historical resurrection is everything, as I shared before. It's the foundation of our hope. It grounds the Christian worldview for the way that we view and the way that we see everything. But there are many that don't believe in the resurrection. I don't see how they can't with, with all of the evidence that we've looked at. And, and we've looked at it quite a bit of information that would ground the historical reliability of the resurrection. And it gives me great hope to know, as I shared last week, that it's not just he lives within my heart, but he does live within my heart. You ask me how I know is because there's a bunch of evidence to back it up as well. And that gives me great hope and encouragement that the Christian worldview is actually objectively true. And just by way of review, and maybe for those that weren't here last week, oh, we talked about five reasons for believing that the resurrection is an objective historical fact. And one of those reasons was the transformation of the lives of the disciples. They seem to be a very scared group of individuals. And when Jesus is on the cross, the Bible shows us that there's only one male apostle that was even there. It says to be loved. It does mention some of the women that were there, but we ask the question, where were the others? And we just don't know. Maybe they were scared and they ran away because they were going to face the same fate that, that Jesus was facing, and, and that would be death if they associated with him. And yet, within three days of this crucifixion, they radically change to be willing to face horrible deaths themselves for the belief in maintaining that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. We specifically pointed to Paul and James as not having any explanation for their becoming Christians apart from the appearances of Jesus in their lives. So the transformation of the lives of the disciples is an objective reality that we can look to to ground the historical reliability of the resurrection. The second is the reliability of the Bible. I gave many reasons to think that the Bible is reliable, and if indeed it is, and I believe that it is, the Bible records the resurrection in all four Gospels, and in several epistles, Paul is making the case that he has experienced the resurrected Christ. So if the Bible is reliable, then we have another good reason to believe that the resurrection is objective fact. I also mentioned number three, the presence and the practices of the church. We don't have an explanation for how the church began in Christianity apart from the appearances of Jesus beginning the Christian movement and then having it explode very close to the date of his resurrection. It's amazing when we look at church history. We also talked last week, and I did say that it was not an accident, but it was the, the, the will and the providence of God that, that we shared in the Lord's Supper. 
because the Lord's Supper, in Christianity anyways, is deliberately tied to the death and remembrance of that death of Jesus Christ. But it's the resurrection, I believe, that gives uh, proof that the death of Christ atoned for sin and did the things that the Bible says. Because that, the resurrection is ultimately the proof that all these other claims that Jesus made were legitimate. I would also point out that baptism in Christianity has become an association with the death, burial, and resurrection. And I shared last time with the way that I've baptized people for years of going under the water and then coming out of the water representing a, a death and a burial under the water and coming out of the water represents association with the resurrection. And that those who are baptized are, are giving a, a physical act of an internal belief that I, I relate to this experience. And I put my faith and trust fully in Jesus Christ, who was dead, buried, and resurrected. And baptism is a physical, a physical act of that inward belief. I also mentioned the empty tomb, that, the, that there was no body ever discovered or ever found. That, uh, that, that would invalidate the claims that the, uh, that the tomb was empty on that very first Easter Sunday. And so the empty tomb and the absence of the body give us good reasons for believing the resurrection happened. If they have a dead body of Jesus in the first century, then we'd be pretty foolish walking around saying that we believe in a resurrection if there's a dead body. But with no dead body and an empty tomb, we're on pretty solid grounds for maintaining the belief that the resurrection is a historical account. But my fifth argument wasn't really an argument, but, it, but it's an interesting thought to consider. And that is that there are no good alternatives that explain away the evidence that we've already looked at. I've given four good reasons to think that the resurrection is a historical objective event, and yet there's really no alternate explanation that explains it all away in a slam dunk argument. But there are still people, even after you share, show this evidence and you share with them and you pray with them, there are still people who don't believe. And I've done this with people that have been in my church, family members that they've had that, that are struggling with faith, or students that I have that still won't believe even after I spend a month sharing this information with them. And, and it baffles me as to why they withhold belief when it just seems so obvious who Jesus is, and what he did. But I want to share with you now, systematically for the next two weeks, some of the excuses, I would say, or arguments that people give as to reasons why they don't believe in the resurrection, even after you share this information with them. And I'm going to show that what I believe these four solid pieces of evidence, transformation lives of disciples, reliability of the Bible, presence and practice of the church, and the empty tomb are good reasons in the face of all of these excuses that people give. And I think the better we understand the excuses that people give and how to resolve them, not only, number one, will we walk away with a stronger faith because we know that there are resolutions to these excuses, but we will then be better prepared if and when we face a discussion with somebody on the truth of our Christian faith and they say, well, I'm not a Christian because, whatever that because statement is followed by, hopefully we'll cover it in the next two weeks. And if not, 
If for some reason I, I share 13 reasons why not to believe in Jesus, and I resolve all 13 of them, and you still are baffling over something that I didn't cover, would you please come talk to me and share with me? Because I would love to add it to my unit on resurrection for future sermons or for discussion with my classes that I, I, I share this information with them every year because I just think that it's so critically important to ground the historical reliability of the resurrection. But when we're talking about reasons why people don't believe, we're not going to get through all 13 today. We're going to break them kind of in half and cover part of them today and part of them next Sunday. But one of the most popular arguments that I've come across, and there are different variations of all of these, one of the most popular arguments that I've come across is the challenge of miracles. The challenge of miracles. If somebody assumes that miracles cannot happen and the resurrection is a miracle, then they would then assume that the resurrection does not happen. And this is really a, a worldview argument because if you believe in Christianity, you believe in miracles, right? And as somebody who believes in God, in the beginning God created. Obviously, that would be a miracle. And I believe in miracles all along the way. I see miracles happening in the Old Testament. I see a lot of miracles happening in the New Testament in the work of Jesus Christ. And many of us would also say that through our lives, we've probably experienced some miracles and some validations of, of God working in our own lives, whether those are healing miracles, provision miracles, or, or what they might be. We've experienced them. But there are still going to be people with a naturalistic worldview that say that miracles don't happen or miracles cannot happen. Now, there are really two variations of this. One is the assertion that miracles absolutely cannot happen. And, and, and that kind of view finds its roots a lot in some of the writings of David Hume, uh, where the argument is if, if a, a miracle cannot happen and the resurrection is a miracle, then therefore the re resurrection could not even, it's not even possible. Not even possible that it happened. And, and this is really, this argument is based on the false assumption of the first premise that resurrection or miracles cannot happen. Because how do you, what proof do you have that miracles are impossible? That miracles cannot happen? Because you certainly can't prove a miracle in a scientific way. Because science is based on observing something consistently happening over a period of time and then making conclusions about what you're observing. And if I observe something happening many, many times, I can draw a conclusion about it. But a miracle by definition really is a, is a one-time event. It's, it's, it, it, it's breaking that natural law that we observe and draw scientific conclusions about. And I'm not maintaining that I have a scientific argument to prove miracles. What I'm saying is that the miracle of resurrection is a historical event, and it's a, the best explanation given all of the evidence that we have. And so if a miracle is the best explanation, I'm not going to claim to prove that scientifically. I'm going to claim that this historically is the most likely thing that happened. And that's different than a scientific claim. And I have a lot of students, well, several of them, atheists or they want to challenge things, and they're, they're married to this scientific paradigm. 
And what I have to show them is that science is good, but it's only good for so much because it cannot demonstrate at times what is the most likely event that could have occurred historically or one time. And I'm not claiming that the miracle of the resurrection happened over and over and over again so that we can put it in some kind of scientific paradigm. What I'm claiming is the miracle of Jesus' resurrection is a one-time event, and it's the best explanation. So that, that's one side of it, is to recognize that there's just a flaw in the premise, and if somebody is married to, to, to science as their paradigm, or they're married to a naturalistic worldview, it's very difficult for them to accept miracles. But that is a faith issue as well, and that's what we have to realize. I, I came across a book from Norm Geisler, and the title of it, He's, he's a Christian uh, apologist. The title of it is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And I love that title because atheism requires, I believe, more faith than going where the evidence leads and leading into the Christian worldview. Because what we're asking is to be open-minded with the Christian worldview, to be led by where the evidence takes you. And if the evidence takes you somewhere, we're open to going there in the Christian worldview. Now, there is another version of this. Uh, it's not saying that, that, that the miracle cannot happen. It's just saying that there's not enough evidence or there's not enough reasons to believe that the resurrection did occur. And I simply want to point to what I call the case of the flu. Uh, an atheist by the name of Anthony Flew. Now, he never actually took the steps to become a Christian, as far as my knowledge. But he was a very strong atheist for most of his life and most of his career, written books on atheism. But towards the end of his life, he looked at the evidence and he realized that, you know what? Based on the evidence, there just might be a God. As far as my understanding, though, Anthony Flew never actually became a Christian, but he did take that jump from atheism to deism, which is a form of theism. But what it shows is that at least if you're willing and open to go where the evidence goes, it leads to theism. And I believe if he would have dug a little bit more, maybe he did and I don't know, uh, you can find the truth of Christianity as well. But if somebody throughout their life says there's not enough evidence, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, and gets to the end of their life and says, but wait a minute, there actually is enough evidence, then we have a, an explanation of somebody, an atheist, who the atheists now don't like to talk about because he did convert to a form of theism. But I would also maintain that when somebody says there's not enough evidence, there's not enough evidence, there's not enough evidence, you really have to pin them down to how much evidence would be enough evidence to convince you. <laughs> because remember when the, uh, the religious people of the day were challenging Jesus to perform a sign and wonder for them. He called them a wicked and perverse generation for those who chase after signs. But he says, I'll give you one, and it's the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was the sign of the resurrection because as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then his resurrection. His resurrection was always the primary argument or the primary piece of evidence that people would need to put their faith in him. And if they didn't believe in the resurrection, I'm just going to say, you're not going to believe anything that I have to share or any miracle because he's already done these miracles, right? He's had somebody on the mat get up and walk. 
He's, he's touched blind people and they see. He's spoken to people and they start speaking and they start hearing and he's done all these miracles. And yet people are still asking for one more, one more, one more. And the ultimate miracle is the resurrection. He's left that behind for us in history, but I believe in the Old Testament, people were looking forward to that event. In the New Testament, they experienced it. And now in our day, we look back on that event as a historical validation for what we claim as Christians. So that's one argument. The, the excuse of, of, uh, of, of miracles can't happen or don't happen or there's just not enough evidence to uh, express the rea reality of a miracle. But the second argument that people have used is a variation of what we call the swoon theory. And the swoon theory claims that Jesus never actually died on the cross. And there are a variety of reasons for this, but uh, one of them comes from H.E.G. Paulus in The Life of Jesus. He wrote a book in 1812 claiming that Jesus never actually died, and so therefore he never actually resurrected. And if you have no death, you can have no resurrection. And in his book, he writes of a resuscitated Jesus. As if, as if I were to, to somehow pass out and be taken to the hospital and be put on life support, but then come off the life support, I never really died, but I was just resuscitated. And if I never really died, then I never really resurrected. And that's kind of the idea. Jesus fainted on the cross, he was taken off the cross, but he never really fully died, so he never really fully resurrected. There are many problems with this, as you might consider. Uh, but before we get into some of those problems with that version, I also want to point out that this is something that the Muslims believe. In the Quran, now, I don't know, this might be the first time that somebody's actually quoted the Quran in your church. I, I don't know, maybe not. It's happened before? Okay. All right, but, but in the Quran, in Surah 4, 157, it says, And for their saying, Indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following assumption. They did not kill him for certain. And so the Muslim view is that Jesus never actually died. There, there are different versions of this, but uh, one of the views from the Muslims is that there was somebody else that died in his place. So somebody really died, but not really him, or that, G that God rescued him right at the last minute. And, and for speaking with Muslims about this, the reason they don't believe that Jesus died is because they don't believe that if, if, if he's the prophet, that God would have allowed him to die in this way. He would have protected him and come at the last minute and saved him. And so in the Islam view, there is no resurrection because there is no death and crucifixion. And then same with the H.E.G. Paulus view. But in response to this, there's some things that we want to consider. And, and we've talked about the second piece of evidence, reliability of the Bible. So I'm going to take a look at the biblical account of, of what happened to Jesus. In John 19, 31 through 37, it says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. 
But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, that's important, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And in Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, and Psalm 34, 20, it talks about how the bones of the Messiah will not be broken. In Isaiah 53, 5, and Zechariah 12, 20, it mentions way back in the Old Testament the significance of piercing of the side. And I think that this is significant because the fact that they don't break Jesus' legs demonstrates, number one, that he was already dead, and number two, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Because when somebody is dying on a cross, it's a death of asphyxiation, where you're up there until you stop breathing. And one of the things that you would do is, when you got so exhausted for your last breath, you just push up with your heels and fall down to catch a little breath. And if you break the legs, you stop that process, and I can no longer breathe. So when they come to Jesus, they find that he's already been, he's already, he's already dead, and so there's no reason to break the legs, but just to make sure they pierce his side. And I find this interesting. In the Journal of the American Medical Society, in an article entitled, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, it says this, Clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. It supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. And so what this journal article did was it took the story of Jesus in the Gospels and it compared it to modern medical knowledge, what we have now. And we see that there's no way that Jesus could have escaped the death on the cross based on the way that the Bible explains it. And again, if the Bible's reliable, that's my evidence number two, then we have good reasons to believe that Jesus certainly was dead. Not to mention, not, not to mention that the Romans were experts at executing people. And they had ways of making sure that people were dead. Not to mention the burial and, and the linens that were wrapped around Jesus or, or that he was placed in the grave and the, and, and the tomb was sealed. Now, not to mention those things of other ways that he would have died, but to show that he actually was dead on the cross, uh, this passage of Scripture, as well as backed by the Journal of the American Medical Society, I think makes it pretty strongly clear that Jesus clearly was dead. And any, any of these uh, arguments that are trying to be proposed that Jesus never actually died on the cross are, are just not even worthy of consideration. A third excuse that people use to try to escape the resurrection is that Joseph of Arimathea stole the body, that he was somehow in cahoots with Jesus on, on uh, trying to make it look like Jesus was the Messiah, and that he went ahead and stole the body. This idea was first proposed by 
Dr. Hugh Schoenfield in the Passover plot in a, bo a book uh, published in 1965, that Jesus wanted it to look like he was the Messiah, and the way that that would happen is to have an empty tomb and a story expanded that Jesus resurrected, but the way to do it was to get the person that was going to bury him to steal the body. But there are some issues with this, major problems. Number one, I would say that Joseph of Arimathea really, really did have a, uh, a high integrity and a high character. Uh, he was a member of Sanhedrin and a very high level of, of, of Jewish authority. He's a person that would not have been made up as somebody who would have opposed uh, Jesus' movement, kind of an insider to actually be a follower of Jesus, to care enough about him to, to, to allow his tomb to be used. But we also have to ask the question, when was this uh, window of opportunity? When was the window of opportunity? Because you've got several people seeing Jesus taken off the cross. You've got several people around him while uh, he, he's, he's being uh, embalmed with the, with the, with the linen and, and all of the spices and everything. You've got people watching him being placed in the tomb. And then you've got Roman guards who were guarding that tomb for their life because Jesus was an authority. He was a threat to the Roman Empire, which is largely why they were okay, and the Jewish Empire largely okay with crucifying him. They wanted him dead. They viewed him as a threat. There's no window of opportunity for Joseph of Arimathea to have taken the body, and then you ask the question, what would he have done with it? And this, th th these stories have, have nothing to do with the arguments that we already have about remembering the Christian story starts not only with an empty tomb, but with appearances of Jesus actually appearing to people. And not just in an apparition form, but also in a, in a touching and, and, and evaluating and experiencing the resurrected Jesus. So we really don't have any reason to believe that Joseph of Arimathea or anybody else would have stolen the body because these theories, they might account for an empty tomb, but they don't account for what really started the Christian movement and that was the visions of Jesus appearing to people in bodily form. And I think that that's important. Another version, very similar to Joseph of Arimathea stealing the body, is that the disciples stole the body. Now when we get to this one, I first want to start out by saying that this is the original excuse for the empty tomb. This is the very first one that ever happened in history. So how do you know? because it's explained and expanded on in Matthew 28, 11 through 15. When the soldiers find that the tomb is empty, they realize that they're in hot water. They don't know what to do. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. What are we going to go tell Pilate about this one? <laughs> and they get together and they say, well, we're going to have to go back to Pilate and say that the disciples stole the body. And in Matthew 28, verse 15, it says that this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. So at the time when Matthew was written, we talked about the time and the gaps and the dates and all that last time, but at the time that Matthew was written, that story was still being circulated among the people. Now, it's not that much time we talked about last week, but I think it's interesting that that story was the first one to try to explain the empty tomb, and it continued on, and there are still some people who might believe it, that the disciples were on this big conspiracy theory 
to try to explain away the empty tomb, that they started this story that the disciples took it. But if the disciples stole the body, then they would have known the truth. They would have known that Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. So what do we do with all of the biblical accounts of appearances of Jesus? That would be a problem. Another problem is my first piece of evidence we talked about last week, the transformation of lives of the disciples. Now they might start off all excited with this story. Let's see if we get the story off the ground. But I'm not so sure that they would have embraced that consistent lie when faced with death. Especially the way that we described the manner in which these uh, apostles died and then their followers died for the claim of experiencing the resurrected Jesus. But even what about doubting Thomas? He doubts. He doesn't believe in the resurrected Jesus until he touches him and experiences him. And then he believes. Or what about Paul and James, those who didn't believe? Uh, it doesn't seem that Paul gets on, this, this, on board with this lie of the disciples when he's somebody who, as Saul, is persecuting them. He has to have an experience of some sort to go from Saul to Paul. And the best explanation is that Jesus actually appeared to him. So the view that the disciples stole the body, it is the very first excuse that was ever given. But what I find, what it does for us as Christians, is it gives credibility to the reality of the empty tomb. Because if the, empty, if the tomb is empty, somebody's going to have to say something in the first century. And if in the first century... Those who oppose the Christian movement are saying the disciples stole the body. That proves there's no body in the tomb. That proves empty tomb. And I think that that's even more fascinating to realize that those who oppose, oppose Christianity give credibility to one of the major premises of the Christian view, and that is that the tomb was empty on that very first Easter Sunday. I think that's interesting. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, famous royal professor of law at Harvard, says that if then their testimony was not true, there is no possible motive for their fabrication. If this was a lie, what did they get out of it? They, they weren't going around making a bunch of money. They weren't going around writing books about it and making great sales. And they, 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 they weren't profiting in any way. What their profit was was persecution, imprisonment, Death by great suffering in humiliating ways of great pain. That's what they profited, and that doesn't seem like much of a profit for something that's not true. So it seems to me that the disciples stealing the body is not a good reason to, uh, to, to substitute the reality of the resurrection. Number five, and this one seems pretty absurd, that the Jews or the Romans stole the body. Really? Because they're the ones who are opposing the Christian worldview. Why would they do the very thing that would promote the Christian view, you see? The Christian view is based on an empty tomb. Why would you, if you were a Jewish or a Roman authority, do the very thing that would start this, this great spread of Christianity that Jesus is resurrected from the dead? And then we'd have to ask, why would they turn around and accuse the disciples? of doing something that they did. And none of this has anything to do, again, with if Joseph of Arimathea steals the body or the disciples steal the body or the Roman or Jewish authorities, we're still left with what I believe is the strongest piece of evidence, and that is the appearances 
of Jesus to various people at various times. And, and none of these theories really address that. How does Jesus appear to people? How does the Christian movement get started if somebody stole the body? So I don't believe that any of these stealing the body theories are of any value whatsoever. Number six, is it possible that we are here today having church over 2,000 years after this event all because the women went to the wrong tomb? Is that possible? Now, this is, this is a theory that was expanded upon by a liberal theologian by the name of Kirstop Lake. He suggested that the women had gone to the tomb very early on Sunday morning and asked the gardener where Jesus was laid, and the gardener responded, he's not here. And the women get all excited and they go proclaim resurrection before he says, he's over there. And there lies the problem. Was Jesus really over there and still over there for the last 2,000 years? Is Kirsop Lake right? I would think not. But I do find it interesting where Kirsop Lake gets his idea. He gets his idea from a twisted version of John 20, 10 through 16. And take a look what happens here. In John 20, 10 through 16, it says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Now here's where Kirsop Lake gets his idea. When Mary first sees Jesus, she what? Thinks he's the gardener. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And when he said her name, she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. See, eventually she realizes who Jesus is. And at first she doesn't. And before I address the question, why do people not recognize Jesus for who he truly is? I think this is a, an interesting piece of, of, of scripture. I, I want to point to another occasion in John 21, 4 through 7, where the disciples don't recognize Jesus. And then I'll try to deal with this question of why do people not recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Because obviously she loved Jesus. She sees Jesus but mistakes him for the gardener. But that's not the only place of mistaken identity. In John 21, 4 through 7, says that the disciples were out fishing all night and hadn't caught a thing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul that net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So eventually they realize who, who Jesus is. 
And there are some who don't really think that this is a miracle. They think that Jesus is up on the shore at a vantage point where he can just simply see. There's fish on one side, not on another, and you need to go on the other side. Be the equivalent of going out of the St. Clemente Pier, fishing on one side and not catching anything. Somebody looking on the other side and say, you throw your line over here, you're going to catch something. You throw it over there and you just get a bunch of fish. It, it could be that simple, but I really think not. Because when I went to Israel and did some study on the Sea of Galilee, I learned a lot about fishing that I didn't know until I went there. And one of the things that I learned is, is how the fishermen in the first century fished. They didn't use rod and reel, and they were just happened to be using the wrong bait. They, they were out there with nets all night long, using a very thick net at nighttime, because it's dark and the water's dark. They could go very, very deep and pull up really big fish with these really thick nets. Well, they'd been out all night fishing. And caught a thing with these really big, thick nets. And they're wrapping it in. They're ready to call it a day. But the sun is starting to rise. It means it's daytime. There is a different type of net that you use during the daytime. A very thin net that fish aren't going to be able to see. If you use the thick net during the daytime, it's like using the wrong kind of bait. The fish are just going to go around it. So what makes this a miracle is not that Jesus is up on the hill looking out, and he happens to see a school of fish on the other side of the boat. Anybody could do that. What makes this a miracle is the power of Jesus to allow these fishermen to use the wrong kind of nets at the wrong time of day to catch an abundance of fish. That is the work of God, and that is the miracle. But to address this, this other issue of why do people not recognize Jesus for who he truly is, well, it could have been, in both cases, it's very early in the morning, and they just don't recognize him. In both cases, it seems to be very early. It could be a time of day where the sun's not quite up, and we just can't really see who it really is. That's possible. But my personal view on this is that nobody recognizes Jesus for who he truly is, apart from the inward work of the Holy Spirit in your life, opening your eyes of your heart to see Jesus for who he truly is. So it's not a surprise to me to find various accounts in Scripture where people don't recognize him at first. But I do want to point out that in all of these cases of mistaken identity, the identity is soon corrected. And they very soon see who Jesus truly is. And then they worship him and they celebrate him. So that may be the answer. Why do people not recognize who Jesus is? Well, I can't explain exactly why, because I wasn't there. To, to know why Mary didn't recognize him or, or, or Peter or John, why they didn't recognize him at certain points of the day, I don't know. But I do believe that people do not recognize, even in today's society, who Jesus truly is unless the Holy Spirit unveils that for him. And when the, when the veil is lifted, we can all see Jesus for who he truly is. Number seven, there's a view out there that says that Jesus rose but he only rose as a spirit, kind of like a phantom or a ghost, but not physically. And th this really finds its roots, I'm not going to get into Gnosticism today, but it does find its root roots in, in Gnosticism, which is, is kind of a, a first and second century cult that some people still embrace today, but it's, it, it's largely a, a view that, that the, the physical aspect of the world is bad, 
And it's all about knowledge and the spiritual realm. And so Jesus wouldn't, in Gnosticism, rise in a bodily form because physical is bad and spirit is good. So he only rises in spirit. But what I believe is that the bodily resurrection is extremely important in order for Jesus to overcome death. If all you have is a phantom or a ghost or a spirit, you don't have a real victory over death. And so I believe that the physical resurrection of Jesus is what needs to be uh, explained and affirmed by the Christian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 16, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. What that would mean is that if Jesus only shows up as a ghost, then your faith is futile, you're still lost in your sins. But if Jesus shows up in full bodily form, full resurrection, full victory over death, then we all have victory, and that's, I believe, what Paul is trying to explain. In fact, he may even be explaining a an argument against some of the heresies and some of the Gnosticism that was going around during his time. For some people were saying that the resurrection didn't happen. And he's saying, well, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christ has not been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Uh, Paul grounds all of our hope for eternal salvation in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it wasn't just that he appeared to people and that was it, but he appeared and, and did things in a bodily, physical form which I think is fascinating. We talked several times, and I'll bring it up again, in John 20, 26 through 29, the, the, the experience of doubting Thomas, not believing what he was seeing. He thought he was a ghost, but it wasn't until he, he examined the wounds that he was able to say, okay, this is my Lord, my God. Or in Luke 24, 38 through 39, when Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so the argument against the spirit-only resurrection or the, 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 the spirit-only appearances or a, a ghost form is refuted right there in Scripture. Jesus says that a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And it was a full bodily, physical resurrection, giving us hope that there is real victory over death. And the last one we're going to look at today is similar to the ghost view, but it's a, a hallucination view. Now, there's an atheist by the name of Richard Carrier who does a lot of debates with theists and Christians out there in the community. He's a contemporary atheist. Uh, he wrote a book called The Empty Tomb, Jesus Beyond the Grave. And this is what he says in his book. I believe the best explanation, consistent with both scientific findings and the surviving evidence, is that the first Christians experienced hallucinations of the risen Christ, of one form or another. In the ancient world, he says, that to experience supernatural manifestations of ghosts, gods, and wonders was not only accepted, but often encouraged. I would simply respond to this by saying that any time period, if spiritism or the occultism of some sort of experiencing ghosts is not even relevant to whether or not Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. Because people experience this, and there's been a, a growing movement, I, I would say since the 90s, 
a growing movement in our society, I think I've noticed this even more and more among our students at Maranatha, uh, an interest in the occult, in spiritism, and trying to contact dead people. We've seen this in TV shows and talk shows and that, and they've kind of come and gone. But it seems that it, it's really a movement that has grown. And so I think it's something that kind of comes and goes as society and in history move in different areas. And it very well may be that people in the first century were interested in the occult. I, I don't know. But I don't think that that makes it then an excuse for the resurrection of Jesus. And where I really disagree with Richard Carrier is when he says, I believe the best explanation consistent with the surviving evidence. But my surviving evidence is the transformational lives of the disciples. It doesn't seem that that would be based on hallucination. The reliability of the Bible. If the Bible's reliable, that is grounded in the historical event of the resurrection, not just hallucinations. You've got the beginnings of the church grounding its practices and start in the appearances of Jesus. Some claim that that's hallucination and not the real physical. But you've still got this other problem, which number four for me, the surviving evidence, is the empty tomb. Because with hallucination theory, you still have a dead body. But with the empty tomb theory, you don't have hallucinations. Plus, I haven't really found a lot of historical accounts that will allow for a, a, a hallucination to happen at one time among a large group of people where we could validate this, you see? If, if I were to say, look, I'm hallucinating Frank right now, you would all say, no, you're not, and we can go and touch and experience and realize that Frank is here. If I said, I'm hallucinating Ricky right now, you would probably say, well, he's nowhere to be found. <laughs> he's not here. You would soon correct this. If I started talking to Ricky right here, you would look at me like I was crazy. Why? Because we've got a room full of people who could validate who's really here and who's not. And that's why I don't think hallucination theory works when Paul says that he appeared to 500 of the brothers at the same time. If you only had one appearance of Jesus at one time to one person who really loved him and missed him, I might be able to walk a little bit further with the hallucination theory. If you could produce a dead body, then okay. This whole thing was based on some kind of hallucination. But we've got an empty tomb. We've got nobody ever discovered. We've got multiple experiences of visions of Jesus, but they're not just visions. They're experiences with a physical body, of a Thomas touching him, of disciples eating with him, and doing things that physical bodies actually really do. And for those reasons, I don't believe that this could be based all on hallucination. The hallucination theory says nothing about the empty tomb, which is a major argument for the resurrection. Exactly. Exactly, yes. So that, that's a major other issue as well. You've got the people who are against Christianity, like Saul, who becomes a Christian, and you would just, if you had hallucination, you would just have the people that already believe affirming something they already believe. But to have people that are anti-Christian experiencing something that would cause them to be a Christian, it just seems that hallucination does not hold any ground. So today we've looked at eight objections. Uh, there are going to be more coming next week. But the reason why this is so important, I believe, is because the world will do whatever it can do to cover up truth. These are just part of, part of it. I'm going to share 
some deeper ones, more perplexing arguments that I've come across in my years of ministry, in my years as a teacher. And, and one of them I'm going to share with you next week uh, even caused some heart palpitations for me. But nonetheless, they've all been resolved. And that's the good news. But that's one thing I realize. That the world will do whatever it can to distort the truth. And we have a responsibility as Christians to share the truth with people. And even though it may be uncomfortable at times, we have a responsibility. I believe that these early disciples died for the truth. And here we make excuses because we're uncomfortable with sharing with somebody that we love or care about or have the opportunity to share with. And I believe fully, 100%, that the resurrection is not just some subjective emotional feeling that we have, but it's an objective truth that grounds us and hopefully encourages you to maintain your faith during those rocky times. I've been through some rocky times. And, and if I was just based on emotion and had an emotional Christianity, I would have chucked this boat a long time ago because it's not easy being a Christian. And, and what, makes, what allows me to continue through the difficult, rocky times is not the emotional stuff, but when the emotions are saying, jump ship, it's the objective stuff that holds me grounded like an anchor. But our Christian worldview shapes everything, and that's why this is so critically important. Because as I shared last time, it shapes the way that we grieve, doesn't it? We don't grieve the same way, although we do grieve. We don't grieve the same way as someone with no hope because as Christians, we do have hope. We recognize that God will provide. Might not be our greeds, but he will provide our needs. He takes us on avenues that we don't understand, but we walk down that trail with faith because we're grounded in something objectively true. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to dive into some great detail and get a little deep over the next three weeks of talking about the resurrection. We're thankful, Lord, that we laid a solid foundation last week that would be able to help us to navigate through half of the issues that people raise against the Christian faith. Now, next week, Lord, as we wrap up this three-week series, I'm going to be sharing some that have even perplexed me some areas that I've wrestled with, some places that I've needed to go in a little bit deeper areas of, of research and faith uh, to resolve. And Lord, I pray that after this sermon series is done, is that if there's anyone who knows somebody who is still struggling with their Christian faith on the issue of the resurrection, and they have something that we haven't covered, Lord, I pray that they would come to me and, 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 and we'd be able to talk. Lord, that I might be even enlightened to some of the arguments that are out there that haven't even been considered yet. But Lord, I do pray we recognize that this is a faith issue, that we choose to put our faith in you. But it's not a blind faith. That's what I love about the Christian faith, Lord. From the very beginning, you invited investigation. You continue to invite investigation. And we should not be shy or afraid of investigation because when something is true, it will be discovered. And Lord, I'm grateful that you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life waiting to be discovered by those who are willing to investigate you and go where the evidence leads. In your name I pray. Amen.